Hi, I'm Rick Atkins, pastor here at CFCC. Welcome. We hope you enjoy this sermon and that God uses it to grow you in your relationship with Him. Before we get started, our goal is not to replace your investment in a local church with online content. We were made for community. We want to encourage you to engage in a local church with your gifts. See, when the people of God invest in the community of God, they experience the transformative power of God. And that is our hope and prayer for you. Again, thanks for joining us, and we hope you enjoy the sermon. You guys can be seated. Well, good morning, church, and Happy New Year. Let me say good morning and Happy New Year to all of you joining us online this morning as we kick off 2022. Man, everything moves fast, doesn't it? Uh, I, I, can f I feel like it already. We're going to be before long saying 2023 is right around the corner. What are you getting for Christmas, right? I know it feels too soon, but I'm telling you, it's going to feel like that. It just feels like everything just moves exponentially fast, um, especially as you get older. And so uh, we are in 2022. And if you have a Bible, join me in the book of Nehemiah as we are jumping back into our series that we put a pause on uh, last November so we could celebrate Christmas together. So Nehemiah chapter 5. And if you have a Bible or electronic device, go ahead and open that up. It's in the Old Testament. The Bible split into two Testaments, Old and New. In the Old Testament, if you find the book of Second Chronicles, you go to the right, find Ezra, you'll find Nehemiah. If you're on the other side, you'll find the book of Job and come back and Esther and you'll find uh, the book of Nehemiah. So Nehemiah in the Old Testament, again, we we're walking through this book last uh, fall, and we entitled that series. So there's a slight transition change uh, with the name of the series. Last fall, we entitled it The Kingdom is Near. And as we begin this year, we've kind of transitioned that title as we study Nehemiah to The Kingdom is Here, because at the completion of Nehemiah, we will move into uh, what God has been calling us to, planning and preparing and praying through this fall into our kingdom expansion for the kingdom um, expansion project on our campus. And so more to come on that as we finish up Nehemiah. All right, a quick review. Again, if you're joining us, if you're with us for the first time, we're honored that you're here. Let me kind of try to catch us up to get a little bit of idea of what we finished with last fall in Nehemiah in chapter 4, where we left off. God's people have been rebuilding the wall there in Jerusalem. Um, in chapter 4, they were met with opposition from the outside, and a group of clans, tribal people, a group of people around them came against them to try to stop and destroy them, and then that, that opposition was then defeated. Defeated. We saw that in chapter 4. And, and so the threat seemingly is over, but what the enemy does, what Satan does, is continuing to try to prevent the advancement of the kingdom as he turns to another strategy. He turns to the inside, and he applies the rule of divide and conquer, which most of us are probably aware of that strategy when it comes to defeating an enemy, right? And the reason is that he goes to that strategy because it almost always works. We've, we know the principle that a house divided will not stand, right, will not last. And so where this opposition was from the outside in chapter 4, the people came together. But where there's opposition on the inside, the people fragment. And we're going to see some of that in chapter 5. And that's the strategy of the evil one. And it's, and it's relevant for you and I today. It's relevant as we think about us moving forward and what God's called us to here on our campus, to the ministry of people and for his glory, that we have to be united. We have to see those attacks and see the enemy clearly, and we have to be united so we might move forward. And, and so we're going to study this today with an understanding of what it means for us as we move forward this year in 2022. So as you look at chapter 5, it could really be broken down into three sections. The first part of it is the problem. It's the problems that have arisen inside of the people, inside of the camp, if you will. And then the second 
part of the section is the answer. It's going to come. Here's, here's how we're going to correct this. And then the last part is the example. And so are we going to go through 19 verses today? We are. We are. We're going to, we're going to get there. So um, let's jump in. Problems 1 through 5, chapter 5 of Nehemiah. Now there arose a great outcry of the people and their wives against their Jewish brothers. For there were those who said, with our sons and our daughters we are many, so let us get grain that we may eat and keep alive. Verse 3, there were also those who said, we are mortgaging our fields, our vineyards, and our houses to get grain because of the famine. And there were those who said, we have borrowed money for the king's tax on our fields and our vineyards. Verse 5. Now our flesh is as the flesh of our brothers, our children are as their children, yet we are forcing our sons and our daughters to be slaves, and some of our daughters have already been enslaved, but it is not in our power to help it, for other men have our fields and our vineyards. So one thing to remember as we get into chapter 5, that in chapter 4, Nehemiah required the workers there rebuilding the wall to stay in Jerusalem while the work was being done. So they couldn't go back home. So, so the men who had come from the surrounding areas couldn't go back home to tend to fields or, or do things to take care of their families. They had to stay to help guard, to protect from the enemies that had been attacking them. And so that's not helping the situation that is occurring here in chapter 5 in his first five verses. So as we start, here's the problem. There's this outcry, right? There's this complaint. There's these accusations. There's three of them made and given to uh, Nehemiah from the people. And it's really from the, the wives of the men, if you notice there in verse 1, right? The cry, outcry of the people and of their wives against their Jewish brothers. So in verse 2, there's large families that don't have enough food to feed their children. That's one, right? Verse 3 tells us there's a famine. And so instead of farming to get the food, and because they're building a wall, they're having to buy the food, and there's not enough. That's the first protest, right? Secondly, in verse 3, those who owned property had to mortgage their land to keep up with increasing inflation. They had to pay a tax to the Persian government. Now, the Persian government... They were very free in allowing people to do um, you know, different things in their lives. But one of the things that they had to do for that freedom was pay a heavy tax. They were burdened with a very heavy tax. And you couldn't give grain and you, and you couldn't give a part of your land to pay the tax. You actually had to pay the tax in gold or silver. So which means you had to take your land if you didn't have gold or silver and you had to mortgage it so that you could pay the tax. So that's the second thing. And so what happened was people who didn't own property then had to borrow the money against their land and leverage it that way. But because of the increasing, being, the increasing interest being charged to them, they were going deeper, deeper and deeper into debt. And it was a problem that was getting bigger and bigger. And then verses 4 and 5, the third accusation, were those who were borrowing to pay their expenses were unable to pay those to their creditors that they had borrowed from And so their creditors demanded that their children be sold into slavery, that they themselves be sold into slavery, and it was happening. Now, here's here's the thing that you've got to keep in mind. We've got to keep in mind. This is Jewish brother, sister to Jewish brother and sister. This isn't uh, an outside, a foreigner that they're dealing with. These are, this is the family. This is within the family of God. This is within the, the nation of Israel that this is happening. These are Jewish people who are lending money to their Jewish brothers and sisters, and when they can't pay it back, they said, well, give me your kids and let me enslave them until the debt is repaid. This is family enslaving the sons and daughters of other family members. That's a problem. That's a big problem. And that 
created a great outcry from the people, verse 1. So that's the problem. Very, very straightforward. Here's what's happening, Nehemiah. In the building of this wall, this is what's happening inside the family. And it was dividing the people inside. And it was becoming a concerning threat. But then we get some answer. Verses 6 through 13. Look at the next section. It says, I was very angry when I heard their outcry in these words. I took counsel with myself and I brought charges against the nobles and the officials. And I said to them, you are exacting interest each from his brother. And I held a great assembly against them, verse 8, and said to them, we, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations. But you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. And they were silent and could not find a word to say. So I said, the thing that you are doing is not good. Ought you not to walk in the fear of our God to prevent the taunts of the nations of our enemies? Verse 10. Moreover, I and my brothers and my servants are lending them money and grain. Let us abandon this exacting of interest. Return to them this very day their fields, their vineyards, their olive orchards, their houses, and the percentage of money, grain, wine, and oil that you have been exacting from them. Verse 12. Then they said, we will restore these and require nothing from them. We will do as you say. And I called the priests and made them swear to do as they had promised. Verse 13. I also shook out the fold of my garment and said, so may God shake out every man from his house and from his labor who does not keep this promise so he may be shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said amen and praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. So we have the problems in verses 1 through 5. We see Nehemiah's response here and what he says to the people. And if you look at verse 6, he's angry. It says he was very angry. In the Hebrew, it literally says he was burning up with anger. It burned me up. He was furious. Now, there are times for us to be angry. Sometimes in the Christian world, in the Christian faith, there's teachings that say no Christian should ever be angry. And then the other side is that you know, we should be angry at everything. And so there's some confusion there. But there are times when we should be angry. The, the, the important thing is what are we angry about? Is it a righteous, whole, holy anger? In fact, I'd say if you're never angry at anything at all, then maybe there's something missing. But we should be angry about injustice. That's a righteous anger. And that's okay. That's an emotion that we have, right? I mean, you think about Nehemiah. How can there not be this emotional response when he hears that the people of God, who are to be the example of caring for one another, right, coming together, united, caring for one another, they're not caring for one another. They're, in fact, hurting one another deeply. When you enslave the children of your family members, when you enslave the children of your brothers and sisters, that is a deep hurt. These people are reflecting, these charges are reflecting a deep hurt among the people of God. No wonder Nehemiah was extremely angry. The New Testament teaches us to be angry and sin not. Now that's easier to, for me to say than for us to live out, right? But what I want us to grab onto is what he did do with his anger, Look at what Nehemiah does here, and let us learn from this. This is important for us. He didn't respond out of anger. Verse 7 says he took counsel with himself. He was angry. But then in the very next thing, he took counsel with himself, which is he sought the Lord. He sought God. He thought carefully. He prayed. He got his anger under control. Before Nehemiah contended with the guilty ones, before he, he confronted the guilty ones, of exploiting 
brothers and sisters, the poor, those who were struggling to feed their families and themselves. He consulted with God and, and, and with himself. He spent time. He took a breath. This is significant for us. He didn't go off in a rage and blast those who were, who were wrong. He paused. He stopped. He cooled off. He thought. He prayed. We know that Nehemiah, as we studied the first part of this book in the, in the previous year, feels weird to say that already. In the previous year, that Nehemiah was a man of God. And in being a man of God, he was a man of prayer. So we know that when it says he took counsel, one of the things that he did was pray. He spent time praying. And he prayed things through. And he thought things through. And only then, after that, did he take action. Proverbs 16, 32 says, Whoever is slow to anger... Is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he who takes a city. Self-control. All of us as Christians, if you're a believer, if you're a Christian, if you follow God, if you're a disciple of Christ, all of us need to exercise self-control when we experience the emotion of anger, when we get angry. It's taught throughout Scripture, James 1.19. You jump into the New Testament. James 1.19 tells us that we are, be, are to be quick to listen, but we are to be slow to speak and slow to anger. And the reason is, is, is that we are to be quick to listen and slow to speak because God gave us two ears and one mouth. We should listen twice as much as we speak. And although that's in jest, that is a great principle to live our lives by. We live in a culture of impulsivity, right, where it's just immediate, Sometimes we don't filter the things. And sometimes that's through anger or rage or undealt things that we have within us that come out of us. So, so there's a great principle that, that we're taught here by Nehemiah. That even though he was furious at what he has been told, he pauses, gets himself under control. And then he responds. And we see his response in the next couple of verses. Verses 8 and 9, there's something of a trial, right? He brings together the great assembly, and he says, what is happening is wrong. This is offensive to God. It's offensive to God. You, you believe, and most commentators believe, that at this point, Nehemiah sensed that there is a, a big possibility that there is going to be a fracture among God's people. And where he had every right to call them together and have a legal debate and go back in to the law that God had given them, the laws that they were to follow, he could have brought that up and had this legal debate about what they were doing and why it was wrong. Instead, he appeals to their conscience. He appeals to their heart. He says, what you're doing is wrong. This is offensive to God. This is wrong in the eyes of God. And he appeals to their conscience more than he does the debate. And he makes three challenges as an answer to the problems. Verse 10, he simply says, stop. Stop charging them interest. Period. No more. The law does condemn it. As God's people, we don't lend and then charge interest. We lend. We are to be repaid, but we lend with no interest. Stop charging interest. We're also supposed to be the model and the example to the surrounding people and nations. And if this is how we're treating one another, how's that, how's that really modeling God's gracious generosity and God's presence to us and in us? So what he's saying is, he's saying, do what, you, do what I did. And we're going to see this in his example. 
He's like, let me be the example for you. Yes, you're, you're okay. You can loan to your brother who is in need, but do not charge interest. He says that in verse 10, stop doing this. Verse 11, he says, restore. Not only are you to stop it, but restore what you've taken. Everything that you've taken, if you've taken interest, if you've taken anything from your brothers and sisters, give it back. Give it back. So stop taking interest and give back what you've taken. And then and lastly, he tells them they got to promise not to do this anymore. He tells them, you got to keep your promise. you got to stop doing this, and you got to promise to never do this again. And just to add a little bit to the promise, verses 12 and 13 says he brings in the priests so that they have to promise before the ones who hold the assembly accountable, the priests. So it's basically them making a promise before God that they're not going to do this anymore. And they did. They actually agreed with what Nehemiah challenged them to do. They made a solemn vow before God that they would no longer do this. And just to add one extra piece of accountability and one extra piece of this is bigger than us, this is about God and his glory, which we also know was a part of Nehemiah's life. He was so concerned with God getting his glory that he deserved. It's one of the reasons why he went back to build the wall. He does one little thing in verse 13 to remind them. This prophetic thing of shaking his garment. So the garments that they would wear, the cloaks and stuff, would have all these folds with them, and they would be kind of tied there in the center. And, and sometimes they would tuck important things up into those folds so they wouldn't lose them, and so they wouldn't misplace them. And what does he do as a picture to what God will do if they don't keep their promise that God will shake them out? And so he shakes out his folds and the stuff falls out. And he says, this is the reminder. This is, this is what will happen. God will shake you out of the fold if you don't keep your promise. Another little, another little push to make sure they understand how critically important it was. And then we get, the, again, the response in verse 13. And all the assembly said, Amen. And praise the Lord. And the people did as they had promised. That's amazing, isn't it? It's absolutely amazing, their response. It's breathtaking. And it's only by the work of the Spirit that this could happen. Remember what's going on. I mean, we're talking about people's money, the things that we hold on to tight, personal property, personal gain. Me having more than the other person. We're talking about wealth. We're talking about land. And the fact that they responded with amen. And they did as they had promised. It's breathtaking. But it's not of them. That is the work of the Spirit. Right here in this text, you are watching the Spirit of God move among the people to unify them, to bring them together. And only by the work of the Spirit could this happen. That's why it's so breathtaking to see this movement because we can see very tangibly that this is not of, of man. This is not of woman. This is not of us. This is of the Spirit within us. That's what's happening here with them. So it's breathtaking to see the Spirit move in such a way, bringing unity to defeat the division that the enemy has brought against them. It's amazing. And we get to the point where we ask, what does it take to make that shift, that kind of greed to that kind of giving? We know it's a work of the Spirit. What's the Spirit moving in us? What does it take? Again, They've just been assembled. They've had a godly rebuke among the people, among their people. And through that, it leads to a, a change, a transformation within them as they made the commitment, but then out of them as they actually did the action. 
What does it take? And the word, one word, generosity. But not just any type of generosity, sacrificial generosity. You see, that at the core is the corrective that Nehemiah is challenging the people with. His answer to the problem is simply, we got to be generous. we got to be generous to one another. Sacrificially generous. Which brings us to the last part of chapter 5, his, his example. Not only did he talk it, he lived it. Look at this, verses 14 and 19. Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years... Neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people, but I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on this wall, and we acquired no land, and all my servants were gathered there for the work. Verse 17, moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews, and officials besides those who came to us from the nations that were around us. Now what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance. Yet for all this I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Remember, for my good, oh my God, all that I have done for this people. So we see the example within Nehemiah's life. He didn't just talk it, he lived it. And you and I need to follow that in our, in our walk with God as we live out the ways and the calling of God in our lives, as we live out the scriptures in our lives. We need to not just talk about it, but we need to do it. We need to follow in action. And you can't just have action and not talk about it. You can't just talk about it and not have action. They come together, right? This is what Nehemiah is doing. We read that he's been governor for 12 years, and it's kind of you know, a shift in the timeline here and He gives those specific dates of the reign of Artaxerxes so that we have, you know, as his first appointment as governor, so we have this validity, this continuity, this this continuation that we know we can look up and make sure the scriptures are true and right. And in verse 15, we're told that Nehemiah is entitled under this Persian law to tax the people. Like I said, that was something the governors that they had as a law under the Persian Empire, that they could tax the people. 40 shekels is about 30 pounds of silver per month. And the governors had the right to do that for their living expenses. And the governors before him, they did that. They laid a heavy, if not more, on them. And even their workers around them, it said they put that burden on people. But Nehemiah tells us in 15, he said, I did not do that. I am not doing that. Instead, verses 17 and 18 says that not only did they stay and keep working on the wall in 16... And not only did they not acquire any land or take anything for themselves as they were doing that, but in 17 and 18 it says that he provided. He provided for a lot of people, 150 people that showed up at his house for dinner, foreigners, travelers, those who came through the area who ate at his table. And he did this on the daily, right? He served them daily at his own expense, not at the level of taxation that he could have done, that he could have laid upon them, but at his own expense. Now, we don't know how he paid for it. No doubt God provided and blessed. But what's clear is that he was not growing his net worth as the governor. And so in sharing that, he tells them, I'm challenging you. He he brings that upon them, not just to say, this is what you need to do. Now go do it, and I'm going to live as a governor. No, you need to do this, and here's how I'm doing it. 
challenges them to radical, sacrificial generosity, and then he shows them this example of living out that radical generosity. It's an example of self-denial. He had every right. It was legal for him to do the taxation, but he didn't. It's an example of self-denial. It, it was a Jesus-like attitude. That's what Nehemiah has. It's a Jesus-like attitude, isn't it? If we remember what Paul says about Jesus in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, Paul writes, Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus humbles himself. We're going to reflect on that in a little bit. In communion. He humbles himself. Jesus denies himself. Deity was Jesus' right. To sit on the throne of heaven was his right. It was his privilege. Why? Because it was his throne. We don't put Jesus on a throne. He's already on it. Just because you or I call him Lord or Savior or King or God doesn't make him Lord, Savior, King. He's already Lord, Savior, King, God. We respond to that. This was his throne. He had every right. But what did he do? He denied it. He denied himself that right for us. And we see in Nehemiah him doing the same thing for his people. It's compassion. There's a lesson of compassion here. When you look around, when you see others, when you go throughout your life, do you have compassion on people? Do you see people as God sees them? Do we have compassion? And doing that, the Christian principle is, is are we denying our rights for the sake of others? That's what Jesus does. It's what he did for you and I. How can we not walk in that same path? It's a Christian principle exemplified in Nehemiah. He sacrificed his rights. He engaged in self-denial. It's the Jesus-like thing to do. Imagine if we did that in 2022. Imagine what this year could maybe look like. What motivates us, though? Why are we motivated to do that? I mean, the people of God, what motivates the people of God to live out that kind of self-denial, that kind of generosity? Because that's what it is. It's sacrificial, right? It's sacrificial generosity. It's giving up one thing for the sake of something else for someone else. What motivates us? There's one phrase repeated in verses 9 and 15. I don't know if you caught up, caught on. It's the phrase, four words, the fear of God. What motivates a life of this kind of generosity is nothing less than the fear of God. What is it about the fear of God that motivates this kind of generosity, we ask? I mean, is it really fear? Is it really fear? Is God commanding, is his word commanding us to be afraid of him? It's an important question, right? It's an incredibly important question. It's an apologetic question. It's a question to have an answer to. It's an important question, especially when you realize that the phrase fear of God is repeated over 125 times in the Bible. And the fear of God isn't some Old Testament construct. There are those who try to say there's two different gods at play here in the Bible. An angry God and a compassionate God. This isn't an Old Testament construct. It's found throughout the New Testament. And the fear of God, listen, is simply this. Taking God seriously. The fear of God is just simply taking God seriously. 
In its most simple form, it's taking God seriously. Taking him more seriously than we take anything or anyone else in our lives. Really getting it that God is the central, dominant, controlling reality of all of life. Really getting it. The fear of God is orienting all of our lives to him, to his word, to his character, to his promises, to his command. It was Nehemiah's life. That's what we've seen so far. We're going to continue to see that over and over. He oriented his whole life around God and his glory. He see it already a couple of times in chapter 5. We've seen it in previous chapters. He is bringing up the fear of God, how it, how it instructs how he lives out his life. One author put it this way. The fear of God is the acute awareness of the presence of God's power that produces in me a sense of awe and calls forth from me honor, reverence, delight, obedience. I mean, what if we began 2022 with that posture, with that orientation of our heart, that we're going to take God seriously, we're going to take God's word seriously, we're going to take God's commands and, 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 and principles seriously, we're going to take God's promises seriously. Sometimes we, we kind of push back when we hear about commands or, or principles that we need, convictions that we need to live out, especially when something is done to us. But man, do we want to hold on to those promises when something bad happens, right? What if we took all of it because we have a healthy, reverent fear of God? See, it's taking God so seriously that it changes everything in your life and my life. When you and I take God seriously, it changes everything. It orients my gaze. It orients my heart. It orients my affection, my obedience to him over anything and anyone else in life. Imagine the change in our lives if we live like that. So do you have a fear of God? And if you don't, what if you did? What if you did? See, chapter 5 presents problems. It shows us the answer godly answer to those problems that don't come from a place of rage, anger, or any of the other emotions that can skew and warp us. It comes from God. And then it's modeled. You see, in chapter 5, in the first part, you know what Nehemiah did? You notice what, what you didn't read in verses 1 through 5? You don't read Nehemiah responding. What is he doing? He's listening. He doesn't interrupt he lets them speak. He lets them share. How much different would our lives be if we didn't interrupt? We just listened. But then he became a minister of reconciliation, which Christians are called to be in the New Testament anyways. And from there, he led compassionately, generously, sacrificial. Where is all that modeled? In Christ. Christ hears. He listens. He brought us the ultimate reconciliation, which we will celebrate and respond in communion and he led compassionately to live generously in gratitude for the ultimate in generosity given to us is the son on the cross the son on the cross it's the ultimate 
gift of generosity. Jesus on the cross. Our ability to be generous begins with a reverent awe of God's generosity to us on the cross. Christ's attitude toward us was compassionate. It is generous. And so as we move to a time of communion, I'm going to invite you to go ahead and pull out your little communion cup. I'm going to invite the band to come up and join me. God's generosity to us, we see on the cross. And so as you open up that little top layer, you pull out that little wafer. And as you're looking at it, as it represents symbolically the broken body of Christ, Christ's body being broken, generously, sacrificially, he allowed his body to be broken so we don't have to be. You don't have to live a broken life. You don't have to be broken through the things that come against you. Through his broken body, we find perseverance. Through his broken body, we find strength. Through his broken body, we find hope. We find comfort. See, Jesus allowed his body to be broken so that ours wouldn't have to be. And every time, whether you're at home doing it with some other element, or every time we're gathered here and we pull out the little white wafer and we look down, may it break us of our pride. So you don't have to be broken by hurt and pain, but we need to be broken of our pride. We need to be broken of our narcissism, of our selfishness. That's all of us. Some days we're walking pretty good. Walking with God side by side. Some days we're lagging behind. Some days are better than others. That's the Christian walk in a, in a fallen world. So his body was broken for us to be healed. But in order for us to be healed, we've got to be broken. The pride, the jealousy, the bitterness, the resentment, the hardness, selfishness, the uncertainties because he didn't hold anything back he gave everything so this should 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 mess with us a little bit this should even at times there are times there are months where it should ruin us because we need it not in, not in a way that we don't know what's going on, but in a way that we get so off of ourselves and so re-centered on Jesus that it really leads us forward with the hope and the grace and the love that we truly need to be the light to the darkness that is around us. So maybe for you this morning, this is what you need to start 2022. You've just drifted away from that and you need to come back. But in order to do that, there's some things that he's got to break off. And in his broken body, it's exactly what he does. He has the power, and he's given us the power through his spirit to do that. Let's not be, let's not be reluctant today. Let's not hold back. 
Life is short. Let's take this together. I'm going to invite you to go ahead and open up the bottom half of the cup. And again, as you're opening that, as that juice comes into view, representing the the only pure, precious blood that could be shed, that in our brokenness that we could be made whole, that in Christ shedding his blood, pouring out the blood that needed to be poured out, the precious lamb, that when we look at this, we, we remember, we reflect that he had to bleed for our rescue. And as you think about him bleeding for our rescue, don't ever forget that he did it willingly. He did it willingly. A love for me and a love for you as he looked from the cross to us is what held him on the cross. He did it willingly to the glory of his Father and to our good and salvation. He did it willingly. He allowed it to pour from his head, from his wrist, from his feet, from the, from the spear in his side, from his back. He allowed it to pour so that he could pay fully what we deserve to pay. It should mess with us, right? What kind of love is that? I'll tell you what kind. It's a generous love. It's a sacrificial love. So when we see it, it should break us. That he knows your name. He knows your name. He knows every hair on your head. He knows every spot on your body. He knows everything in your mind. He knows every hurt. But he brings hope. He brings healing. He knows. And he loves you. And so when you look at this juice, don't brush it off as just something that's done and Christianity let it sink in let it move let it, let it make you pause this was done for me oh God you set me free you've broken the bonds and the chains of misery and, and guilt and doubt and shame all that stuff's been taken you've set me free so that you and I can experience a taste of freedom now. One day, one day, because of this, for those in Christ, we'll be free forever. Let's take this. God, right now in this house, sir, even online, God, I pray for your presence to be felt in greater ways than they've ever been felt. Because that people, your people, brothers, sisters, people come home. They've drifted. If they've walked away, if they come home, experience as we start a new year, 
an opportunity to step with you, trusting, believing, empowered by your spirit and your grace to be bold and courageous, but also to orient our hearts to generosity this year, that we would have a healthy, reverent awe, fear of you, that we would take you serious, we take your word, we 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 take your principle, we take your son, and we would hold on to the promises tighter and tighter, only by the blood. And we exalt Christ, hold him higher than anything else in our life, so that all people can see him. We pray this in his name. Amen.